Welcome back to season two of the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. Last season, we heard about climate change denial, riverfront development in Nashville, and our river friends, the Hellbender, among so much more. Are you caught up on season one? All the River Talks are available now. We're excited to be back with a new River Talk series recorded live here in Nashville, Tennessee. This week, we heard from John Guider, a photographer and journalist who shared how our actions affect the landscape and well-being of wildlife halfway around the world through the stories of his Antarctic adventure. My voyage to Antarctica was predicated by some other journeys and uh, just the desire to see icebergs and see a land that is so romanticized. Uh, Antarctica is known as the coldest, driest, windiest continent on Earth. And it occupies one-tenth of the Earth's surface and within it, 90% of all the fresh water on Earth is contained. And uh, that's a very important statistic, especially in the advent of global warming. Um, the ice, normally the ice is so reflective, it's like a mirror, that even in the summer, the sun will come down the ice reflects it back up into uh, the outer regions and, um, and really nothing melts. But what's happening now is with global warming, the, uh, the atmosphere becomes more and more dense. So when the light reflects off of the, uh, off of the ice, it hits the... Uh, it hits the atmosphere and is absorbed in it and then becomes warmer and warmer. So uh, it's, a, it's a slow decline, but it's something that we really have to uh, be aware of. Uh, I started this journey on November, 20, November 12th, and this is uh, sort of their glamour picture of the boat. <laughs> And it's very enticing. This is the picture I became used to. <laughs> they, um, the the Bark Europa was built in 1911, and uh, not so many years different from the. Uh, the boat that Shackleton took on his very famous adventure and survival. And, uh, and in, in, in an interesting way, this route followed Shackleton's route. So that was another thing. I, I don't know if you've ever read South, but the book is just incredible. The fact that he could survive t two years on an ice floe is just unbelievable. And um, so he is a true hero of mine. So one of the motivations is to follow his course. I started in Montevideo. We went down to South Georgia, uh, then into the Orkney 
islands and into the Weddell Sea, and that's uh, once you get into the Orkney Islands, you're you're in Antarctica. Landing in Montevideo, it, it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, city. Um, one I never would have gone to any other way, but it's very enjoyable. They have a uh, walkway that's 40 miles long along the ocean. So I spent days just walking, seeing the sights. It's a modern city and also a very classical city. Um, some of the beaches are touted as, as the best in South America. And from that romantic prelude, we get to the boat. And uh, it was interesting, you know, I signed on as a volunteer crew and I thought, okay, volunteer, uh-huh, you know, I'm a 70-year-old man, they're, they're just gonna let me be and I'll enjoy myself and uh, life will go on. And uh, my wife said, you obviously didn't see the video, and I guess I didn't. Uh, we get on board, and it's on time to unfurl the sails. And these are the crew members, and they're incredible. Um, they're young and spry and uh, death-defying. They're, they're almost acrobatics. The, we were given a book about the sailboat that we were supposed to learn and uh, it has 26 sails and an infinite number of lines and how one can understand in just a few days, it's impossible. This is Hans and uh, he was our uh, onboard uh, doctor, 80 year old um, Scandinavian and um, he was old school. He wouldn't allow any antibiotics. Uh, he would uh, insist that if you were seasick, uh, you'd eat a lot of crackers. And if you got a chest cold, that it's, it's honey and, and lemon. And um, I drank a lot of honey and lemon. And he's using his skills to repair the sails. And it was amazing how many sails ripped during the journey and what, how much repair had to be made. Uh, the, a couple people ripped as well, so he was uh, a very adept at, at sewing them up too. We got under sea and um, it was sort of a pleasant, pleasant leaving until you, uh, you get away from the continental shelf and, uh, and then things start to get a little traumatic. Uh, these are uh, called dusky dolphins. They followed us along the coast, and uh, when we got to uh, what is known as the Roaring Forties, they they quickly departed. One of the things that we were assigned was uh, was shifts, and um, they they varied. They were they were four hours on, four hours off, and they rotated. So one night. You'd be called at midnight to go to four, and the next night you'd uh, be woken up at four to go to eight, and so forth and so forth. And um, there were a lot of us that were kind of indignant. Um, 
you know, we just paid a whole bunch of money and we're having to do all this work. And uh, it, it didn't set well with some of the older folks like me. And, um, and I, it was something that I really had to deal with for the, a large part of this journey. Um, this is called a black-browed arbitross, and you can see, and they would follow us. They were pretty much our constant and only companions for, um, for the thousand miles down to South Georgia. And uh, of course, albatrosses are seabirds. Um, they, they relish and live on the sea. And um, when you get down past uh, the tip of, uh, of Antarctica, you get in the roaring 40s, and um, it's called a uh, Arctic cir circumpolar current which means that there's no obstruction of land once you get below South America. So once the seas get rolling, they roll around and around and around. And we were in 30, 40 foot seas. And uh, I remember the first day I got out, went on the deck house and looked out the window and I couldn't see sky. And I was like, am I really supposed to go out there? And I was hesitant. And then I saw the, the captain walk through the deck house and he had no concerns. So I figured if he wasn't freaking out, maybe I shouldn't either. This is where I slept for 40 days. And um, I'm not a very social person. And one, one of the things that almost kept me from going was, how am I going to share a bunk with uh, five other people? And it turned out that everybody was so wonderful that it, it wasn't a problem at all. But the this, this sense of having any kind of, um, of peace and uh, separation just had to evaporate once you got on board. Uh, this is the library. It was one of the few retreats where you could go and kind of have some peace to yourself. And then this is the deck house. And um, we ate here and then down below as well. And the, the rails were lined with all of our outer gear. Um, everything got wet, you had to put it up. You hoped that it would dry by the time you got back on. And even getting dressed in all the gear to get out took at least 15, 20 minutes. So the exhaustion was incredible just to get on board. When we hit the, uh, the roaring 40s, the, the skies damped and we, we, were, uh, we had 50 knot winds. We had very severe weather, um, kind of typical. It would blow us off course. Sometimes the um, winds would get so bad that the captain had to take down the sails and we just drift with the storm. Uh, someone said, well, what about our engine? And what I found out was that there was enough diesel to get us out of port and into port, but um, forget it for the rest of the journey. So there we were, we were pretty well 
stuck in this ocean environment. And we rocked and we rolled. And uh, here again, the, the uh, permanent crew got up and did what they had to do. It was amazing. And then <laughs> we get to South Georgia and uh, we get to sea ice and things start to change just a little. Uh, here the storms were so bad, 50 knot winds, uh, we couldn't land. <laughs> so we just had to kind of see the land and uh, that added to our frustration. So it was supposed to be a, a 10 day journey to South Georgia. It turned out to be about a 16 day journey. And uh, here's the, but then we were treated with some incredible views. And finally, we were able to make land. And um, this is us getting ready to go on shore. Uh, there, there's a uh, incredible biosecurity measures that take place. Uh, you had to, you had to wash your feet. Um, you couldn't. Everything had to be cleaned. Uh, all the Velcro had to be picked and there could not be anything in it. You, you were well inspected and um, even that took, took lots and lots of time. Here we are lowering ourselves in. And then this is um, Right Whale Bay on uh, Georgia Island, South Georgia. And uh, these are fur sails, and the fur sails come up uh, on land. It's mating season, and they're trying to uh, stake out their territory, and they get to be very aggressive, so one has to be very careful when they walk through that herd. And these are, um, what are they? Okay, these are the north, uh, northern giant petrels and they're very distinct um, on their beak there's uh, there's upper nostrils and what they're what they are there for is to uh, clear the salt out of the salt water and um, a number of the uh, ocean birds have those those nostrils here they're they're fighting over a dead seal. It's a close up, and then of course we have the seals, and this is a Weddell's Weddell seal, and these are um, I'm sorry, okay, these are the South Georgia pencils, and this is a fur seal, and as cute as they are, they will bite you. So you do have to exercise some care. Uh, it's a telephoto lens. There, there are certain rules that uh, you can only be within five meters of, of wildlife. So um, you have to be very careful, follow the rules, or uh, you will be reprimanded. But even in South Georgia, the winds came in, uh, the seas got rough, we would drag anchor, uh, sometimes the seas were so rough that the only way the captain could 
take care of a ship is to pull up the anchor, go out into the open ocean and drift until the storm passed. That's, that's how powerful the, uh, the waves and the winds were. And, uh, but the light and the landscape, just incredible. Still South Georgia. And this is one of the crew heading into, uh, into one of our walks. Our walks were almost as difficult as our, uh, as our journey. Uh, they were long, they were laborious, and um, of course you're in your full weather gear and uh, whatever cameras you had to take. And some of the walks were six or seven miles long. So uh, you got your exercise. And uh, this is the Olav Harbor. And just beautiful, beautiful scenics. And then below you'll see uh, Sona's. And um, you can just see a few little buildings down there. This is the uh, whaling camp that uh, Shackleton um, made it to to be rescued after his two years on the ice. Um, this ship is called the Bayard, and it's notice notable because it's the uh, it's the first steel ship ever made, and it was made in 1864 in Liverpool. And uh, here again, uh, a storm forced it to. Uh, lose its moorings, and before it could be rescued, it ended up on the shore. This beautiful waterfall, scenics. Did that only cover with snow? Yes. And this, um, the grasses that grow are, are um, very primitive, and they don't really provide much nutrients uh, for animal life. The temperatures now uh, during these walks were probably in the high 30s, low 40s. What month of the year was this is, uh, this is in the early December. And um, at night it would get down below freezing. But during the day um, it was a little more acceptable. The walks themselves were sometimes a little dangerous. Uh, we'd had to walk through uh, snow fields like this, and one time I, uh, I slipped and I jammed my uh, camera into my chest, and I thought I broke my ribs. Uh, the pain was excruciating, and um, there really wasn't anything I could do about it. Uh, Hans just looked at me and um, said, well, yeah, he said, if it gets any worse, let me know. <laughs> so, and this is a very interesting landmark. Um, as as uh, the, um, Shackleton had to cross the island, and it was a giant ice field. This is 1911. It's not that far away. Uh, he talked about having to scale this waterfall, and it was thick with ice, and he was afraid of falling. He didn't know that he was going to make it down. 
now the land is clear of the ice. So it is a very incredible sign of what's going on with global warming. And uh, the transition is, is subtle, but it is real. Uh, Shackleton had been on the ice for two years. He made these incredible boat trips to uh, to uh, to get to back to St. George Island, and then um, the first people he saw were little kids. And after two years in the snow, not bathing, not shaving, in the same clothes, he scared the living fool out of the kids. And they ran and they ran, and um, finally some adults came out and they just stared. They didn't know what these creatures were. Finally, Shackleton opened his voice and opened his mouth, and they understood that who he was and where they'd come from. And these are our walks, and uh, just through an incredible terrain. And everybody would stop and photograph the creatures. This is Stronus. Uh, the next morning, uh, the snow came in, and uh, pretty much all the whaling stations in South Georgia along the way have pretty much been abandoned since 1960. By then, the uh, whales and the oil uh, just wasn't as necessary, plus um, a lot of the uh, seals had almost been harvested to extinction. These are called uh, lenticular clouds, and and they're amazing. They they uh, what happens is the wind shoots down the ice and picks up speed, and then shoots back up in the air and cuts through these clouds and make these incredible, incredible shapes. So it's like being on some other planet. And this is Grit Bitkin, and uh, it's been restored. Uh, it's a very popular place for uh, the cruise boats to come. Uh, and uh, it has a museum. Uh, it's just a very incredible example of um, what a whaling station used to be. There's a church. Uh, the thing on the right was uh, where the people slept. And there is where Shackleton's buried. And it's a uh, custom for people to come to uh, toast, drink a little whiskey in his uh, honor. Uh, this is uh, some of the old whale bones that are left behind. This is a seal that wasn't quite happy with my presence. And then a beautiful, beautiful view of the bay. And uh, a lone cross kind of shows the loneliness of, of life on, a, on an island like that. And that was all over your eyes. Yes. And then we did a hike um, to uh, 
let's see if I yeah this is we did a hike to a place called Rookery Point and that is where the uh, the macaroni penguins live and um, it's a very rare and fragile breed and uh, they're very distinctive by their eyebrows and uh, wonderful. They live in the ledges where a lot of the other penguins live down by the closer to the sea. Uh, this is a deer horn in, in the 1910s, uh, the whaling stations uh, introduced reindeer as a source of food and also some entertainment. And um, the, since then, the uh, island's been trying to clear itself of all invasive species. There's still a few um, reindeer left, but um, not, not the herd that there used to be. And this is just a beautiful cove, and you can see how safe the boat is. And what they'll do is we'll cross the island and they'll go around and pick us up on the other side. It's pretty neat. And then we landed um, at Royal Bay in King Harbor. And uh, these are the king penguins. And they're one of the bigger species. Um, the emperor penguins are the ones that are usually seen in the movies, but these are very distinctive. The, these are their yearlings. What's interesting is that for the king penguins, they uh, they only have two out of, th uh, uh, in three years, there's only two breeding seasons that the, uh, the young penguins take so long to mature that um, they're only bred every three, once, twice every three years. Support the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks program and podcast by donating today. You can find the link in our show notes. And there's one of the younger guys decided that he needed to be photographed in his penguin suit. Uh, this is, yeah, uh, this is um, a very important. It's not so much the lack of ice. It, in a way, it is. What's happening is two or threefold. The islands are so remote and so secure. You, you, you saw how tame they are. There's a, there's a five-foot... 15 meter rule, but these penguins are so curious that they'll just walk up to you. They're basically defenseless. Um, it's one of the reasons that Shackleton survived. He reported killing as many as 600 a day just to feed. And um, the, the fur sales are very similar. Two things are happening. South Georgia, because of its ice and its remoteness, uh, can support very few creatures. 
So this is a perfect haven for the king and the macaroni penguins. Uh, they're, they're secure, they're safe. As global warming picks up and more grasses and, and more nutrients grow, then other creatures will want to come in and live there. And these guys will be forced out. The other thing is with global warming, their main food is krill. And krill needs cold water to survive. So as the water warms, their food goes away and their habitat becomes overrun with other creatures that now find it to be a very suitable place to live. At this point, there's about 400,000 pairs of king penguins. There aren't any other king penguins in, in, other than in the Antarctic region. So this is sad. This is an elephant seal, and you can tell why. And um, these little icebergs, um, they, 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 oh, what are they called? I'm sorry. They break off of the bigger icebergs. And uh, one of the reasons that we have to be on a 24-hour watch is that um, they're not big enough to be picked up by radar. So, but they're big enough to cripple a boat. When I was in Ushuaia in 2007, a, uh, a boat hit one of these and sank, and it was quite a major disaster. So uh, what we do on board is very necessary. And then these are called snowy sheathbills. And they would follow us around the islands. Just beautiful. And back to the river. And what's interesting about the, the young um, penguins is that um, they, they are dependent on, uh, on their parents. And with all these penguins, it's the only way that the parents can find out which is which is through the penguin's voice. And each little voice is distinctive. And uh, this is a skewer. Close up. This is an ice fall, and um, it's a very dramatic happening. I was just so glad to be by the, uh, be on board on on top of the ship uh, to catch it. Um, it's like a, a thunderclap. You know, the the ice fall happens, and then you hear the sound. You know, three or four seconds later. This is a sheath kill. And then we get into the Arctic seas and uh, encounter icebergs, and it snows, and uh, it becomes a, 
a, a kind of a very harsh environment. You'll see all these lines, horizontal lines. Therefore, um, you're supposed to hook on their lifelines, and um, you're, you're supposed to hook on to them wherever you go so uh, you don't fall overboard. Um, if you fell overboard, then you say goodbye. And we're in the uh, Orkney Islands. This is in the Arctic Circle. And uh, the ice flows are just wonderful for the penguins. They're safe. They can dive in the water and, and fish. And um, so when they're not mating, this is just a perfect, perfect vehicle for them. And if you're lucky, you get to photograph them. In all that state. You know, it, when you're, yeah, when you're in, in among the whole herd, they do stink. Uh, these are gentoo penguins. No, uh, the, the big predators are the leopard seals, and they can come on land, but they're so happy fishing. You don't, that, that's, that's the remoteness of these islands, and that's what keeps them protected. And like I said, once the ice melt starts and the grasses start to grow, and um, that's when they're going to be in major trouble. What's the scale of all those ice flows? It, it, they're, they're... Bigger than the ship? Oh, yeah, these are much bigger than the ship. So the ship's 150 feet, you know. Can we talk about the blue? Uh, the blue has to do with the refraction of the light, uh, the density of the ice. Uh, it's the ice itself is clear, but it's the absorption of the light. It's um, it, that it turns the eye, it turns the color blue. So it's a it's a visual uh, light radiation rather than uh, the composition of the ice. And then these are the brown skewers, and they're the ones that are disruptive. And this is a shag. And here's Antarctica. Uh, during the penguin mating season, we're, we're just we're blessed to uh, to see the young ones in the birth. It's just incredible. Um, here, I these are all obviously telephotos, but 
just to be so close. And this is the skewer, and this is what they have to protect themselves from. The skewer will uh, ravage the nest, and um, if, if any of the penguin babies are unprotected, they're gone. So, and this was just birth. So as beautiful as they are, they're kind of mean-spirited. And these are Arctic landscapes. It's just incredible. And very towering icebergs. It, it, I would say once you got into the Arctic uh, Circle, uh, it, it wasn't overcast as much. The storms had sort of drifted away. This is uh, an Arctic landscape, and uh, it almost reminds me of the desert. Pardon? Yeah, it would get... I think we maybe had two or three hours of darkness. It wasn't quite um, 24 hours, but uh, four o'clock in the morning, you were walking around and uh, it was pretty easy to see. Uh, these islands chains are known as the Devil Islands and uh, they're basically volcanic. This is a chin strap. Uh, penguin, and you can tell by its line. Uh, this is a, another abandoned whaling station in a place called Deception Bay. And uh, what happened that shut this down was, uh, was actually a volcano. And you can see the blackened ice is still remaining. And um, it was an imploded volcano, and it's known as a caldera. And here, and the landscape is just incredibly perfect for photography. And the ashes, the volcano. But what happens, because it's still active, it heats the water, and the water temperature, even in the Arctic, is around 120 degrees. So this is one of their celebrations that I didn't participate in. And here, it's just... Uh, these are the South Shetland Islands, and uh, just incredible landscapes. And these are the Gento penguins. And you'll see that this is interesting. You see he has a little rock. And they build their nests 
with rocks and that sort of gives them their identity. It gives them uh, a little bit of security. And, uh, but what hap happens is that the penguins go and steal each other's rocks because they have to be carried up from the sea and um, that's a lot of work. Here's a group song. More baby chicks. And just yeah, I mean, these things are as big as the LNC Tower, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And then we're back to the Darwin Straits and another 10 days of just incredible hard and harsh weather. Uh, this man's name is Jordy, and... Um, he was one of our guides. He's got a, he's got his master's in uh, marine biology, and um, his thing is kelp. And so he would give us wonderful lectures on kelp. And and um, I have a quote from Darwin that said, "I can only compare these great aquatic forests of the southern hemisphere with the terrestrial ones." in the intertropical regions. Yet, if any country a forest was destroyed, I do not believe so many species of animals would perish as here from the destruction of kelp. And that's one of the concerns, is that once one thing goes, then everything goes. We're, we're part of a cycle. And we landed in Ushuaia, and Ushuaia reminds me of a Swiss chalet town. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, this is a gull, a red-footed gull. You can kind of get an idea of, of some of the, uh, some of the vessels that, that go to Antarctica. And then I, took a passage to uh, uh, Argentina, to Buenos Aires, and uh, it was a little different than Montevideo. It was a little more dangerous. I'd walk, uh, our um, hotel had an armed guard. <laughs> I'd walk out with my camera and everybody would come up to me and point to, to it and say, no, no, you shouldn't have that, they'll steal it. And although I didn't have any problems, you could see that the poverty was pretty severe. There was one um, oh, one walk uh, in protest for the uh, for the servers' union. Um, I was told that basically their salary is twenty five dollars a week, and um, it's impossible to live on less than five dollars a day it's just not doable so there is a, there is a great divide yeah. I was there on Christmas and uh, got to see that this is one of their wonderful sculptures 
and then that's it. So we have some time for other questions for John. Oh, yeah. Okay, there, there are about 40 volunteer crew and then 10 regular crew. And the regular crew just worked their butt off. It was amazing. And um, part of what I realized about myself, I, I've been on a lot of journeys, a lot of crazy journeys. And um, can you imagine sailing a 14-foot boat into New York Harbor? And uh, for those, it was overcoming fear. For this one, I realized what I had to overcome was not fear, but entitlement. I came on board, I'm a 70-year-old man, I've worked hard all my life, and now they want me to climb that mast and get up at four o'clock in the morning and do that watch, and um, I wasn't the only one. But I realized that uh, it was the only way I could get there, and I realized that my thought of, about entitlement was as necessary as my thinking about my own fears. And what has entitlement prohibited me from doing in my life? And what has entitlement prohibited us from doing what we need to do uh, for, for the environment? And it was a great wake-up call for me. And, um, it was a great learning experience, and um, it forced me to do things that I've never done before, and um, it also forced me to take better care of myself, which uh, probably is the reason I survived the capsize that I did trying to make my way to, uh, to uh, Alaska last year. So um, it was a very, very beneficial experience. Can you talk about acclimating to the rough seas and having to spend so much time at work after you go to the Sure. Um, yeah, I brought some of my notes. They're, they're not very positive. Uh, <laughs> The sea just rolled constantly. We were in 20, 30, 40 foot waves and we're going back and forth. Uh, I, I hadn't been seasick in, in years and I just didn't even think that that was in consideration. Uh, I did, the first night out I got seasick and it had to do with the confinement. Uh, but then I got over that a lot of people stayed sick. There was one poor gentleman that barely got out of his bunk the entire time. It was rather sad. Um, other people had taken some pretty big falls. Somebody, uh, stitches were not uncommon and uh, bruising their legs. Uh, it, took a, it, it took a long time and um, I'm still not sure that even if I got back on the boat again, I'd be comfortable. The other thing is the confinement of 50 people in a lower deck. Once the seasickness passed, everybody got colds and germs. And um, that was a big concern. Um, I didn't know, how, I, I started getting a, 
bronchial infection. I didn't know what that was going to do to me. And uh, Hans just, you know, he just said, you know, no antibiotics. And, and there was a reason, because if you take antibiotics, you're going to pass it into the water and you're going to affect more destruction of the sea. So, uh, so we drank honey, we drank tea, and slowly we evolved. And it was a 15-day trip to get to St. George Island. And I, I was miserable and cursing the fact that, you know, what am I doing? But then by the time we got to St. George, I was fairly healthy. And so it was that time that healed. So there was a positive, positive aspect about that. Well, once you got close to the islands, yes, then then there was something to break the waves. Yeah. Did, did you take these pictures? Yes. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, you can tell I've spent more time on the pictures than I have on my talk, but I do appreciate it. Yes. It's interesting. Um, this I, I sort of got back, and I, I very quickly, when I go on my journeys for two months down the rivers and out in the oceans by myself, I come back and um, I, I go through a period of depression, and it takes about two or three weeks for me to acclimate. I think the reason I didn't go through that was that I was so confined with 50 people and at the end of the trip they're your very best friends believe me um, you know it's crazy the way it works and we love you guys and you know all that so I think that kind of there wasn't that big of a transition you get on the ground and you you start walking a little funny but other than that I think it was it was a much easier transition than some of my other journeys. Yes. Oh no, we had a cook, but uh, if we were sitting in that uh, deck house and not doing anything, all of a sudden there was a big pan of potatoes in front of you that needed to be peeled. The cook was incredible. The food was unbelievable considering the constraints and the cooks was genius. What he would do is he knew how to kind of recycle and repurpose food. So whatever got left behind at lunch turned out to be a wonderful casserole or something like that, or or a great a great soup. And um, uh, so nothing got wasted. And uh, and I can't tell you more about the food. It, it was just great. It really was. Yes. No, it was a, it was an interesting group um, of the forty volunteer crew. There were it was only one other American. It was all around the world, uh, mainly a lot of Canadians, a lot of uh, Australians, a lot of Northern Europeans. Uh, 
some like me came as individuals, other came as pairs. Um, some it was a mother and daughter thing, um, but it it, it it was it was a very homogeneous group. And uh, but it was basically older people retired that kind of had the time, and the younger people that wanted the adventure. They were. Um, ma uh, majoring in marine science and this was this was it and there weren't very many middle-aged people because who has two months when you're trying to raise a family yes yeah well yeah it's 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 the bark europa it's uh it circumnavigates the globe and it goes uh, you, you can get on it anywhere you want, Africa to South America. After uh, Antarctica, it's going um, to the Eastern Islands, and uh, and so it has a central central place that you you do the bookings and everything. But it's it's wonderful. Yes. Oh, the bathing circumstances were fine. Um, uh, you had your shower, and um, you know it, what was interesting is they allowed you one duffel bag, and it was a big duffel bag. You couldn't bring a suitcase; there was no place to store a suitcase. You know, and they tell you to bring twenty-one pairs of socks and twenty-one pairs of underwear, and pretty soon. Yeah, you have this thing, and then all your outer gear. It was kind of insane. Um, and then where you put all that stuff in a bunk, you know, there are five other people. It's a sick, was a six bunk room, so they said, okay, use the six bunk to put all of your stuff. And um, it was a little nuts. It was a little nuts. Yeah, but we did shower. Uh, there was one guy that uh, did a, he was he was a professional snore. Uh, one of the things that helped was that we had a rotating shift, so the snorer might get up at twelve and and go to four, and then you're up at four, and 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 so. But basically, between the rocking of the ship and uh, and trying to get your sleep pattern, pretty much uh, all you did was lie in your bunk and try to rest, especially once I busted my ribs. It was quite a day. We hope you enjoyed this week's talk. To join in on the fun and hear the Q&A session from our weekly speakers, come visit us in the River Center in Nashville, Tennessee. But until then, thanks for listening. We hope to catch you next week with a new episode of River Talks.